preamble. Um, this week I went out with my mom, my, my three-year-old son, my 14-year-old daughter, and my 60-plus-year-old mom, and we're going out um, to Little Italy, and uh, my daughter's just having not the greatest day, um, she's like, yeah, today just kind of sucked. Whoa, what happened? Well, the program director of this hospital that we were at for, for school was just really mean to us. And we were like, she was mean? Yeah, it's like she didn't like kids. And my mom says, well, how old was she? And she's like, she's really old. She's like super old. She was like 40. <laughs> and my mom goes, what am I, ancient? Yeah, I, I, this iPad, it's been great, but it's starting to go slow. Have you guys noticed like certain technology you have just starts to get slow? And I'm totally out of sync with culture, so I'm like ticked off about it. I paid money for this iPad. It's only like 10 years old. It should be working perfectly fine. And one of my kids is like, uh, Dad, it's, it's like from the Ice Age. You know, it's really old. It shouldn't be working fine. Um, my wife, my wife's going to school, and... Uh, so she had to buy all these textbooks, and you could find the textbooks way cheaper online, but the deal is you find the older ones, but they can't be more than four years old because no professor uses a textbook older than four years old. It's like, a, it's like some kind of unwritten law somewhere. Even ancient history, they don't use a textbook older than four years. Nothing's changed, but they still won't use it. It's, it's weird. We, we love new things, bright, shiny new things, but when it comes to old things, it seems like we kind of shun them. And a question that I've kind of run into as we started this series uh, from people kind of outside the church, hanging out at the coffee shop and stuff is this. Why would you think that 10 laws on human behavior written over 3,000 years ago should influence the way we live today? Should have any effect on our civilization? Should, like, who dares to make a statement like that? And the answer is, the church, the church does, because the founder of the church said this. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, in the King James it says, not one jot nor tittle will by any means disappear from the law. What's Christianity? Is Christianity a legalistic religion? Is Christianity a lawless religion? Did Jesus come to get rid of the law? Thomas and I got to hang out this week, and while we were talking, I'm going to put you on blast here, Thomas. One of the things that came up in conversation is he said, yeah, I'm here you know, from Norway on sabbatical, resting, and the conversations come up with a few people. Wait, so you're on sabbatical? Like, yeah, it's like Sabbath. You know, it's a commandment. And they say, yeah, but Sabbath, that's the law. That's, that's the law. You, why would you obey the law? I mean, you're a Christian. You're not under the law anymore, are you? There's so many misunderstandings about God's law. Some of us live like spiritual Pharisees, as if obeying the law somehow saves us. Some of us preach that the law is somehow bad. Other people believe that Jesus came to get rid of the law. But that's not what the Bible says. And we just read, like, the law of God will never pass away. Jesus even said in the verse before that, what did he say? He said, I've not come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. Have you, has anybody ever read Psalm 119? Longest chapter in the Bible. Takes you a good two months to get through it. It's all about the law of God. And you know what? It makes the law of God sound delicious. Like it's, like it's a Lou and Mickey steak dinner. You know what I mean? It just makes you salivate 
for the law of God. The Bible doesn't say the law of God is bad news. It actually says it's good news. Still, some people run from it. They're afraid of its oppression. Other people run toward it, and normally that's out of fear too. They run toward the law. They want to earn their way through obeying the law, or they're afraid of what happens if they don't. And they're all missing out on the freedom and liberty of the Christian faith. And so, so are most of us, I think. Oftentimes, oftentimes, when we think about the law, we think about something that's oppressive and makes us slaves, or we think about something that feeds into legalism because it's all about behavior modification. It's all about changing what you do. And we think of something ultimately that leads to death and we fear it. And while most of us are running to or from the law in fear, so many other amazing followers in scriptures through the, through the centuries, followers of Christ have experienced profound freedom because of their relationship with the lawgiver and because of the beauty and the grace that's inherent in the law. So today, if you get this, I believe all of a sudden, all of a sudden the law will not sound like bad news anymore if it has for you, but it'll start to sound like good news. I believe if you get what this passage we're gonna read says today, your relationship with God will become more intimate. You'll realize what it means to be truly human, to live in accord and in harmony with your own design, to be comfortable in your own skin, to take hold of the abundant life that Jesus Christ purchased for us with his own blood. How many of you guys want that today? You want more intimacy with God? You want some heart transformation? Yeah, good. Good, this sermon's for you. We're gonna read through Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 14, and uh, Kenny's gonna come and read that for us in the NIV. So uh, if you have a Bible app, you can turn there, or, or a standard Bible, you can read on the screen with us. Now, Israel... Hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord, our God, is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, 
which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This is God's word. Everybody say amen. Amen. So, yeah, so a lot of people know uh, about the Ten Commandments. Some people even know the Ten Commandments by heart, but most people don't really know what the Bible has to say about the Ten Commandments. They don't get the context that the Ten Commandments has placed in. And as a result, one of the things that happen is people are just crushed under the Ten Commandments. But you have to understand the content, the context. So let me ask you guys, what is the context for the Ten Commandments? Ten Commandments start in Exodus chapter 20, right? What happened in the first 19 chapters? What are some elements that have happened so far in Exodus? Anybody? Anybody want to jump out? David? Mm. Yeah, so the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt 400 years, and they're oppressed by the Egyptians. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yeah, they need a, they need a deliverer. They were delivered. Yeah, how were they delivered? What happened? Anybody remember? One of the 15,000 movies made about this? Sent Charlton Heston or Christian Bale, depending on, yeah, sent, sent Moses to deliver them. Yeah, what an, what an amazing thing. They're in slavery, they're in bondage, and God sends a deliverer to say, what's, what stands out to you guys about Moses? Like, why is he so cool? Because he was a really broken dude. Moses is a murderer. Moses is a coward. Moses is, has a speech impediment. Mo, and Moses, what's so special about Moses? God chose him. It's good news because God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things all the time, right? That's our God. And, and he does that so he receives glory. So Because none of us, like, we can't take credit when God does something extraordinary through our lives. But God chooses to do that. So God chooses Moses. You guys remember, what are some of the elements of that story? Moses goes in, and what does he do? Just bring him out of Egypt? What, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Moses keeps going to the Pharaoh over and over, right? And, and saying, what, what, do you remember what he told him? Let my people go. Yeah. God is gracious even with Pharaoh, isn't he? Time and time again, patience. With Pharaoh, but what do we see? Pharaoh, how does Pharaoh respond to that? What happens to his heart? It's hardened. Yeah, God gives him grace, and his heart is hardened over and over. So, what does God end up doing? Pharaoh won't just listen to Moses. Yeah. Hmm. Yep, yep. God sends plague after plague until finally the last plague, the most horrific plague. How many of you guys are first? Firstborn in here, firstborn son. Yeah, that means you're dead, basically. <laughs> in this plague, you would have died. There was one way out, and that is the redemption that God provided through the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice. If you killed the lamb, you put the blood over the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over you. That's where we get the term Passover. Yeah, yeah. So, and finally, God breaks Pharaoh's pride. 
and the children of Israel move out and they're set free. And where do they end up? The land, eventually the land of milk and honey. Yeah, did they hit up any spots in the meantime that were big and important? Yes. They, yeah, they wandered for years till a whole generation died off in the wilderness. Why was that? You guys remember what happened? Yeah. Yeah. They just kept disobeying God. How did they know what God wanted them to do? What did God give them to tell them what to do? Anybody remember? The law, yeah. You remember where he gave that to them? Mount Sinai. Yeah. Good. So the Ten Commandments, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. And um, how does God give them the Ten Commandments? He gives it to them at Mount Sinai. And, and so we're going we're gonna to dive in there. And one point about that that I want to say is how God starts out the Ten Commandments. And, and we're going to read it real quick. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He starts off before he gives him the commandments and he says this, I'm the Lord your God. It's really personal. I'm Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of what? Slavery. slavery. The problem is slavery. The solution is God. The problem is always slavery. And the solution is always God. This isn't just a story about what happened. It's a story about what always happens. It's not just a an old book, right? This is a timeless truth. And it's timely for right now where we are as a church, for where you are in your life. And I'm stoked about what God's gonna do through this series. And there's three basic misunderstandings that we have to remedy here. First of all, um, we're gonna dive into the first one. We're spending most of our time in the first one and then the other two will hit quickly toward the end. But the first one is this, that the motive for obedience is not fear, but it's actually intimacy with God. Look at, look at this verse that we just read, verse number 10. He says, God says to them, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people together before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land. Here's an important point, right? Check this out. The law of God wasn't given to the children of Israel in Egypt. Where was it given to them? Sinai. God brought them out and delivered them. He put himself in front of them on a mountain with thunder and smoke like we just read in the text. And he says to them, I want you to relate to me. I want you to revere me. I want you to know me and be in relationship with me. Then he gave them the law. See, if we start just in Exodus chapter 20 and we miss out on the context, what, what happens? We read the Bible through this legalistic or lawless lens. We read these commandments through a fear-based posture. Do this, don't do that. If you do this, then you'll succeed. If you don't do that, then you're gonna be in trouble. So you have to get the context because it's in the context of God has already loved, God has already served, God's already set his love on them, God's already adopted them and brought them in as his loved children. This is not about obeying him so that he will love you. This is about him loving you and helping you to obey. Do you realize how important that is? The Ten Commandments are rooted in grace. They're not 
They're not a bunch of laws that you have to do in order to get something from God. It's because you've been given everything. But this nation of a few million former slaves, they're set free, but they're not living free, are they? They're committing adultery. They're worshiping false gods. They're stealing from one another. They're coveting. They're lying. They're not raising their kids. And the children of the Lord, or or as children in the Lord, and they're set free, but they've chosen not to live free. So God's going to speak to them. And he calls a family meeting. How many of you guys, how many of you guys have rebellious kids? Okay, how many, keep your hands up. How many of you guys have kids? You've got rebellious kids. Okay, how many of you guys babysit kids and that's why you don't have any kids? No, just kidding. Okay, so <laughs> I love my kids so much. I know you love, we love our kids here at the church. Um, and true or false, kids sometimes do rebellious and foolish things. Yeah, yeah. So as a good father, sometimes we call what's called a family meeting. And you know you're in trouble when dad says, all right, everybody, living room, get on the couch, family meeting time. You're like, ah, dang it, what happened? I got caught doing something again. You have these family meetings, you're like, okay, sweetheart, look, you need to stop drinking beer, you're only three. Stop smoking, you know, and finish seventh grade. You know, you got to have these family meetings and really deal with the issues. Um, And God gathers this. That's what happens here, okay? God gathers his kids around the mountain, and he comes down to talk to them and give them his laws. And he's not doing this. He's not saying, do these things, then I will adopt you. He's saying, I've adopted you. I want you to do these things because I love you. I'm your father. These things are good for you, and they're good for others. And part of the struggle with the law is this. If the law is disconnected from the lawgiver, we could misunderstand the heart of the law. That's why years later, the Pharisees loved the law, but not the Lord. Why? Because for them, they focused on the law more than the lawgiver. Anybody know what the Hebrew word for law is? Shout it out there if you know it. Torah, yeah, good. And it's not necessarily a bad word, but I think for us it kind of comes with some baggage because when we hear the word Torah or we hear the word law, we think of things like IRS code, tax codes, speed limits, employee handbooks, chores, right? Anybody? When you hear the law, that's the kind of stuff you hear, bureaucratic governmental stuff. But, but Torah is also a word used in Proverbs when a father who, who loves his kids teaches them how to live wisely, helps them flourish and have life. And the father says it this way in, in Proverbs 4.1, my son, open your ear and listen to my Torah. That's different, right? You hear that? This, this week I was walking through a bookstore and I got this book um, for a dollar, Bear Grylls, anybody? Man versus Wild. And this book is called To My Sons, Lessons for the Wild Adventure Called Life. It's really cool. I got a picture of it in here. Um, like one of, the, one of the parts of it says, have a few close friends who see you often. Their friendship matters more than having many shallow acquaintances. Would you agree? Yeah, that's good. Be honest and vulnerable with those close to you. It creates strong bonds. That's good stuff, right? He's got a comic even. I think I'm addicted to chocolate. Me too. And girls. Me too, right? That's <laughs> Open and honest. So here's the, here's the question. Is this negative? Is this oppressive? 
Like when you hear this, do you feel unloved by it? Do you disregard this as like, ah, this is not meaningful, this is antiquated, it doesn't really apply to me, it's outdated? No way. Why? Because, Because of the context. Because of your relationship. Because of the love. Because you understand the purpose of this, right? But when you read those sentences, just read the sentence. It reads like law. You guys remember there's four types of sentences in school? Declarative, interrogative, exclamatory, and what's the last one? Go for it. Imperative, and what's an imperative sentence do? Yeah, it makes a command. That sounds like law to me. That sounds like a command. But it also shows us the heart of the lawgiver. Like, what's its purpose? This is a dad who loves his kids, trying to help them flourish and live a meaningful life, not trying to suppress them and make them live a meaningless life, right? This is, this is good news. This isn't a law that's against you. It's for you because the heart of dad is not against you. He's for you. That's the father heart of God. And if you separate the law from the father heart of the lawgiver, what happens? You end up questioning things. You end up saying like, is God good? Does God love me? Does God care? Is God even interested? Or is God just some faraway dictator who sends his laws, and if I obey him good, I get good stuff and blessings, and if I don't obey him, I get to burn forever? That's the kind of questions we ask when we don't understand the heart of the Father. Yesterday, we were at Lena's birthday party, and we went to Phil's barbecue. How many of you guys have stood in that line? Now, I don't understand why. Like, there's a long sidewalk, but people still feel the need to get as close to one another as possible. I think it's a psychological thing that it's just, if I'm a few inches closer, I'm moving. Like, I'm going to get my food sooner rather than... So it's tight line, and, and the kids are running around. All of a sudden behind me, I hear, ah! <laughs> this, this poor old guy with sandals, and one of the kids, it may have been Gavin, just dug his heel into the guy's toe because they're chasing each other around. So... This is not good news. The kids are getting yelled at. They're getting frustrated. They, they just want to play. They're bored to death. So I walk them over to this cool grassy area. There's no people standing over here. Beautiful, open, wide, grassy area. Put them in the grassy area. Say, guys, look, run around, play as much as you want. This whole grassy area, it's yours, okay? Just have fun. Here's the deal. On the other side of the grassy area is, is, is like parking lot street and cars pull through. Don't go into that street. You can't. And so, why did I do that? I love, I love my kids. I love, I love these kids. I want them to have fun. I want them to be free. I don't want them to experience the suckiness of standing in this giant line and having to be quiet. That's the worst thing ever when you're three years old, right? I want them to have fun. But here's the deal. I put a boundary there because I love them. I want them to enjoy their life. I don't want them to fall in front of a car and get killed. And you, you would think that even that boundary was the worst thing I could do. Like, Gavin looked at me like, really? Why can't we go in this street? I'm like, you'll understand later on. Trust, just trust, I love you, okay? Just don't go in the street. And I had to stand there and make sure they didn't go in the street. I'm policing these children, right? But I gave them the law. Why? Because my heart's for them. I want to see them experience real life. I don't want to see them, see them die. 
God's motive and instruction is to bring someone to maturity through relationship and intimacy. And our motive in obedience of the law should mirror that. Intimacy. Not running from dad and running from his law in fear. Not running to him in fear. Because that's the other thing we can do. We can run to the law out of fear, out of desire to get something. And if I don't obey the law, I won't get it. Or out of desire that, man, if I disobey the law, I'm going to be punished. So people's relationship the law becomes, with the law becomes this love-hate thing, right? You get this legalism and lawlessness, and it's all because we separate the law from the father heart of the lawgiver. And you end up with all kinds of weird things. You end up rejecting the law and seeing it as oppressive. You end up running in fear from the law or running in fear towards the law, and you use the law to get something from the lawgiver. That's, you guys see what I'm saying? That's the lawless side. The lawless side is like I run from the law and I reject it, and thereby I reject God because it's oppressive. And the legalistic side that says I'm going to obey in order to get, in order to get something from God. And the legalist approach always ends badly, doesn't it? Because when you obey, what happens? You like swell with pride. I'm doing pretty good. I'm a good Christian. And then you look down your nose at other people. It happens every time. Or what happens when you disobey? When you can't live up to the law? You live up to your own expectations. You're crushed, aren't you? Like you're inflated, you're deflated. You're crushed. And then all of a sudden you're on top of the world. Why? Because it's all based on your Performance. It's all based on how you're doing with the law, totally separate from your relationship with the lawgiver. It's religion. It's not life. It's not what God is bringing us through the law. And a quick note, I think we often misunderstand legalism. So I just want to clarify this because I think we need to right now in our church. Legalism isn't as much what we do as it is why we do it. Legalism isn't obeying the law of God. It's obeying the law of God without relating to the God of the law. Legalism is obeying the law of God to get instead of believing you've already been given everything through your relationship with God. And this is a response. Legalism is replacing the lawgiver with the law he gave. It's, it's idolatry. It's worshiping the law instead of the lawgiver. It's building your identity on your own effort to obey the law instead of trusting in what Christ did for you, instead of believing that was enough. It's like, it's like walking up and saying, the finished work of Christ is awesome. I walk up to the cross, I see Jesus hanging there, it's like, thank you so much for what you've done. I've got it from here. And you walk off in order to add your own effort, to add your own work. That's legalism. But just because legalism exists doesn't mean we don't obey the law. It just changes why. That means when we do obey the law, we do it out of, out of gratitude for the immense grace that has been freely given to you. It means you obey the law out of a response to the gospel and what you've already been given, not to get something else. It means you obey the law of God because of your loving and ever-deepening relationship with the lawgiver. In other words, there's two motives in approaching the law. Like, you may run from the law as somebody who's lawless, but when you approach the law, there's two motives. The one is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to obey the law in order to get something, in order to get blessings, in order to get my prayers answered, in order to make it to heaven one day, 
to get something from God. You're using God, you're using his law in order to get something. That's idolatry. It's not life. It's not the purpose of the law. Or you can say, I'm gonna obey the law because I've been loved, I've been saved, I've been pardoned because I'm a undeserving recipient of scandalous grace. I should be out in the cold right now, shivering with no hope, but I've been brought in and called son. I've been loved. I've been provided for. I've been given everything I don't deserve. Because of that, I want to be like him. Because of that, I want to please him and walk with him and get to know him and live in his ways. You guys, we tracking? So there aren't just different attitudes toward the law. Like those two different attitudes toward the law, they're two different religions altogether. One is the gospel-based Christianity. The other one's a legalistic, warped version that says, I'm going to save myself through my own effort. But if you see the context of the law, which is the grace of God, if you take the approach that God has already set his love on me, your heart will be softened. You won't feel the need to run from the law, but you'll run to the law. And when you run to the law, you won't be running to the law to avoid punishment or to get reward. You'll be running to the law because of your relationship with the lawgiver. You'll want to obey the law because of your love for God. And that transforms. Don't you see the genius of the Christian faith is that God is a father. He loves you. You get to know him personally. And his law is how we get to know him. So the motive of obedience is intimacy with God. Two, the result of obedience is freedom, not slavery. Look at Deuteronomy 4.4 that we read earlier. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Obey the law of God that you might live and possess the land. That's freedom. Now, I know conventional wisdom says freedom is the absence of discipline. All right? It's like, you know, Shepherd Fairy's got the obey propaganda, the obey t-shirts, and that's, that's like a sarcastic approach, right? Because only stupid people obey. That's the, whole, that's the whole concept behind it. And I, you know, I have one of those shirts. I'll admit it. I think it looks cool. But the point is that obeying has in our society this really negative train of thought. People think of obedience as foolish. They think of obedience as you're not asking enough questions. You're obeying blindly. You're probably going to be taken advantage of in this society. And, you know, to be honest, there's kind of a point there. In our society, there has been some of that. But then we carry that into our relationship with a loving father. We carry all that fear and suspicion into that, and we look at the law as a negative thing. But Conventional wisdom says freedom is the absence of discipline. And when I listen to people like Brian today playing the lead guitar, I honestly, I get jealous. I get jealous because I say, if only I had that ability, how freeing it would be. I have all these like feelings to express that through a blues riff. Oh, that would be awesome. I see some of you guys play the guitar. It's amazing. I see some of you guys dance. Some of you, it's amazing. And I say, how freeing, how liberating that would be to dance like that. But ask Brian, ask a few people who do know how to dance here, how they got those abilities. How did, how did you get here? Someone asked, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Anybody know? 
practice, 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 right? Hours of disciplined practice, stretching your comfort zone, limiting some of those (coughs) other desires that you have in order to excel in something. Freedom always comes as a result of discipline. But not only that, freedom also comes as a result of honoring your design. We see a bird flying in the sky. We see that, and we're like, oh, that is freeing. That's amazing. But now imagine the bird. Imagine the bird. He's flying up there, and he just says, I wish I could be free. If I could be free, I would high dive down into the depths of the ocean like a fish, and I would swim to the depths of the ocean. And so he lives in angst his whole life. He's very unhappy with his design. Is he free? How freeing would it be for him to try to dive down to the depths of the ocean and swim like a fish? Would that free him? It might free him of life. But it wouldn't set him free because he's not designed like that. You look at the fish sitting in the aquarium, you know, watching TV with the rest of the family like he always does. And he says, if I could just be on the couch, then I would be free. Would he be free if he was on the couch? No, it would limit his freedom, wouldn't it? It would take away his freedom because he's not designed like that. We watch these commercials with a car flying around the mountain highways. Like, oh, I hate work. That would be so freeing. But the car has an owner's manual, right? I remember I'm in college, and my parents gave me their 96 Chevy Impala Supersport with a Corvette engine. Yes, only child, I, I was totally an idiot. I'll tell you why. So I'm driving like 120 miles an hour. That's one of the reasons I was an idiot. Boom! Engine blows up. Steam, power steering goes out. What's going on? I hadn't changed the oil in over two years. I never read the owner's manual. I had, I had no idea. All of a sudden, the freedom was gone because I ignored the owner's manual. To move against the owner's manual is to move against your own design. What's our owner's manual, guys? What's, what's the, uh, what explains the creator's original design for our lives? Anybody? The word of God, yeah. None of us are created to experience freedom going against our design. The bird, the fish, the car, you. You're not created to experience freedom going against your design, but Tim Keller says anybody who obeys the creator's design experiences an explosion of freedom of power. Anyone who obeys his own design, like like the bird soaring through the sky, like the fish loving, fed, taken care of, like the well-oiled car has tires and gas in its tank, you know, it's, you read the owner's manual, it's, it's obeying its design. You're free as long as you submit to the discipline and design of your creator. His design sets us free. The brother of Jesus, James, he says it this way in James 125. This is where we get the title for the sermon. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The perfect law of liberty. Another translation says the law that gives freedom. Sounds ironic almost to us, doesn't it? The law gives freedom. When you understand the law, though, and the intent of it, the Father's heart for you, and it's freeing. Just take a step back and look, because it's not just true of you. It's true of whole societies. I had a conversation this week. We were talking about how amazing 
it is socially that slavery doesn't exist in the West anymore. That's an amazing thing. Um, and the guy I was talking to actually wrote down what he said. He said, standing here in the 20th century, we can't imagine why anybody ever allowed slavery. Right? Why would they allow that? It's horrible. It's stupid. But you have to realize it's been around for thousands of years, and everyone always took it for granted. That was the way of the world. And it's hard for us to understand why anybody ever got it into their head that it was wrong. Let me ask you guys, where did that idea come from? Who, when you look at the British Empire, who got rid of slavery in the British Empire? Anybody remember his name? William Wilberforce. And who was he? He's a Christian along with another group of Christians who looked at the commandments and looked at what God says about our design as humans and said, this is wrong. This has to end. Who, who got rid of slavery in America? Anybody remember what their names, the name of that group? It starts with abolitionists. Good. <laughs> abolitionists. And who were they? A group of Quakers and Methodists and Presbyterians who said, no, this isn't right. This doesn't line up with the word of God. And yeah, sure, there were plenty of Christians on the wrong side of it. But the real question is, why did anybody ever say this is wrong? Well, it started in a small area of society when somebody says, are we obeying the owner's manual? This is the kind of law that gives freedom and meaning to our life. It's the kind of law that dad lays down to love us well, to set us free. So, misunderstandings. The right motive for obedience is intimacy, not fear. The result of obedience is always freedom, not slavery. And lastly, briefly, the purpose of obedience is heart transformation, not behavior modification. Look at verse number nine. He says this, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes are seeing or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. The whole purpose of obedience is the heart, not the behavior. Jeremiah 31, 33, God says to Israel, he says, a new covenant I'll give you. I'll write my law on your what? Your hearts. That means Christian obedience is not a matter of taking these external rules and twisting and contorting and bending and breaking yourself to try to fit in. That's the opposite of freedom. No, it's, out, it's not outside in, it's inside out. The Bible says that when a person receives Christ as Savior, the Spirit of God takes up residence in your very life, in your heart, and bit by bit, and day by day, and stage by stage, God writes the Word of God, the law of God, on your heart so that you begin to develop the integrity that the Ninth Commandment talks about. You begin to develop the, the purity that the Seventh Commandment talks about. The generosity the Eighth Commandment talks about, the, the love, the peace, the, they begin on the inside as a work of grace and then they work themselves out into your life. So it's a process. You guys see that? It's a process. It's not behavior modification. It's not obeying out of a heart of fear. What if I don't obey? Or what if I do? What will I get? It's not, it's not that. It's not being overwhelmed by fear, but it's being overwhelmed by God's grace in your story resting and trusting in his loving father heart for you and seeing his law as good news about how you can live free. Guys, this process is about your heart. It's about who you are when nobody's looking. 
It's about who you are when nobody's telling you what you have to do. Let me ask you some questions. When nobody's around you, where do your thoughts go? How do you live when you're free to do whatever you like? Do you live in accord with your own design? Are you growing in true freedom? Are you living in bondage? Are you becoming more like dad as you see his heart for you and his law? Or are you rebelling against him because you believe he's oppressive and that he's somehow against you? Are you trying to conform your behavior, not for him, but for you, to get from him what you really want? See, only the spirit of God working in your life can transform you at the core. I'll close with this quickly. Uh, Psalm 1 talks about a godly man. Anybody know Psalm 1? Starts out, blessed is the man, right? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. What's it say about a godly man? Does it say that he prays day and night? No, that, that would be great. Does it say he goes to church day and night? No, I mean, it's awesome to get together and worship with people and hear the word of God. But that's not what it says. Does it say that he's out on the streets day and night bringing people to Jesus? Hallelujah. No, I'd love, I mean, I'd love to see fewer red seats here. You know, that'd be awesome if tons of people were coming to faith in New City. But that's not what it says. What does it say? It says he delights in something. What, what is it? He delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He loves it. He loves when the law of God tells him what to do. Do you like that? Is there delight in your heart for the law of God? The answer to that question will tell you the state of your soul. It'll tell you whether you approach God based on fear or love. The answer to how you respond to the law of God will tell you whether you believe obedience to dad's commands will lead to life and freedom or slavery and bondage. The answer to that question will tell you if your heart is being transformed by the gospel or if you're just trying to modify your behavior out of fear. How do we experience gospel heart change? Because that's all really heavy. We're like, well, okay, shoot. You got me. I got myself just now. How do we experience real, true heart change? Well, you have to look at the Father's love for you in the gospel. John 3, 16, what's it say? God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. That whosoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. As we look upon the love of God for us in Christ, and hear this as we close. Jesus Christ lived a life of intimacy with his Father. He trusted his Father's heart For every time I don't, he did. And he experienced profound freedom as a result. He obeyed every command of the law every day of his life. And in the end, he took on the weight of my selfishness, my sin, my fear, my mistrust of God's father heart for me. He took that on and he allowed himself to be crushed under it. Why? So that the father could show you his heart for you. And not let those things come between you and him anymore. God loves you. He wants you to experience intimacy, not fear. He wants you to experience freedom, not slavery. He wants you to experience heart transformation, not just a bunch of behavior modification.
The law is full of good news about God's gracious love. So here's what I want you to do today. I want, and my desire for you is to, that you would let the gospel free you and that you would stop running from the law out of fear and that you'd stop running toward the law in fear of God, in fear of what you get or, or what you get if you don't. And that you look at the law through the lens of this. It's given by a loving father. As we go through the Ten Commandments over the next few weeks, can you hear the voice of the loving father who wants you to flourish and begin to experience him more, experience intimacy with him every day by reading the law? That's what, that's what I want. Just like, like when you read the Bible, pick it up, like maybe Bear Grylls kids do when they pick up this book. Ah, it's my dad. He's got good news for me. This is going to help me live a better life. Can you go to the law of God like that? So as we come down and repent today, I'm going to pray here in a second. But as we do, I want you to gather in groups of two or three and ask this question. On the repentance side of communion, how am I running toward the law of God out of fear, not love? How am I running from it? or toward it out of fear instead of love? Where do I struggle to trust God's father heart for me? Can you guys be honest and ask yourself those questions and confess maybe some areas you're not believing the gospel? And then belief, how how can I begin to trust that God's law brings intimacy instead of fear, freedom instead of slavery, and heart transformation instead of just a bunch of behavioral changes into my life. Let's pray. Dad, we thank you. We thank you that while we were sinners, while we had nothing beautiful or, or enticing about us, while scripture says we were actually your enemies, you refused to let that stand in the way of your relationship with us, but because of your overwhelming love for us, you pursued us, your grace outran us and overtook us, and you scooped us into your arms. That's what happened at the cross. You brought us near to you through the atoning work of your son. And thank you that you gave us, (laughs) you gave us good news. I know some dads that unjustly put, put rules on kids that are oppressive or punish them unjustly. I, I know other dads that don't give any rules and the kids are scared. They're walking around gun shy, scared that their dad's just gonna slap them because they don't know what to expect. But you as a loving father have given us rules that are perfect, that lead to life, that lead to freedom, that lead to intimacy with you. You've showed us how to love you well in response to that great love for that you have for us. Thank you that we don't have to do any of this to get anything from you, but that we've been freely given everything because of Christ. Thank you for the good news today, and I pray we'd believe it more than ever before, that as we walk through the Ten Commandments over the next few weeks, that we would fall more in love with you, that we would see more good news than ever, that our lives would experience the kind of transformation we yearn for because our hearts are being softened by your love and grace for us. We love you. Have your way in us today. Speak to us in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.